0: Sermon text this morning is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the season of Advent. We pray as we look at the great promises that you've given to us this morning, that you would sink these deep into our hearts, that we would understand them, that we would apply them, and that we would delight in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Kids never forget promises. They never forget promises. doesn't matter when you make It doesn't matter how long in the future it is. Kids do not forget promises. If you say on Monday... Son, I'm going to take you to the park on Friday. Monday afternoon, they'll remind you. Tuesday morning, they'll remind you. Tuesday afternoon, they'll remind you. Wednesday afternoon, and so on. They never forget the promises you give. If in May, you say, listen, son, I'm going to buy you a new pair of shoes before school, in the fall, August starts rolling around, guess what? They're like, hey, Dad, remember? Remember the shoes? You're like, remember what? What did I promise you? You promised you'd buy me a pair of shoes. Kids never forget the promises that we make to them. God wants us to be like little children when it comes to his promises. He wants us never to forget. He wants those promises to constantly be in our prayers, constantly be in our mind. If you think about during this Advent season, you think about the first people we meet in the New Testament, Simeon, Anna, Elizabeth, Zacharias, Mary, and Joseph, what kept them faithful? Remember, there's 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. There's 400 years where God did not speak. 400 years of silence. What kept people faithful during those 400 years? And the answer is they clung to the promises of God. If you read Mary's song in Luke, her song is filled with promises from the Old Testament. She knew the promises in the Old Testament. And Advent is about remembering these promises of God. The ones he's kept the ones he's keeping, and the ones he's going to keep. It's about remembering the promises of God. These promises of God are the fuel that drive our work and our worship. They are what keep us going, keep us moving forward, keep us from drifting away, and keep us from losing hope. Okay? So my encouragement to you this morning, as we look at these promises of God, is to be like little children and remember the promises that God has given to us. Okay? And today we're going to see three great promises in Isaiah 2, That God gives concerning his church. Three great promises that will remind us of the glory of God's house. It's easy as we look out and see the church and see some of the ruins around us. It's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to feel like the church is not succeeding. The church is not winning. Okay, we always expect it to turn a corner and it doesn't turn a corner. Well, the men in Isaiah's time, and especially the time Isaiah was writing for, the exile, would have felt the same. Way. Okay. And if you remember Israel's history, you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. you got the 400 years of slavery. you got Moses and Joshua and the judges. And then you got Saul and David and Solomon. And then the kingdom splits. Okay. And then the kingdom splits. And then you have these prophets come along prophesying about exile. Prophesying and saying that Israel is turned away from God. Israel is going to be judged. Israel is going to be taken over by her enemies. Okay. And this is exactly what Isaiah 1 does. Isaiah 1 ends with a verse of judgment, talking about everything being quenched and everything being burned up, okay? So Isaiah 1 ends with judgment, and Isaiah is filled with judgment. All the prophets are filled with judgment, okay? Everywhere you look, there's judgment on Israel because Israel had turned away from God. Israel had forgotten who God was. Her worship was twisted and wrong, okay? Okay? So God gives these promises to his people. So when they're in exile or when they're in darkness or when things look bad, they cling to these promises. And this promise in Isaiah 2 is specifically for the exiles. Okay, it's for those men and women who would go into exile and even come back from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah. If you remember, when Ezra and Nehemiah returned to the land and they built the temple, rebuilt the temple, the old men wept. And why did they weep when they saw the temple? because it, it was so poor, it was so weak, it was so pathetic compared to Solomon's great temple. They cried and they wept. They thought this glorious kingdom was coming. And here's this little kind of ragtag group of people with this poorly built temple, okay? Well, that's where Isaiah 2 comes in. They should, Isaiah wants them to look, or the Lord wants them to look at Isaiah 2 and remember these great promises that are given here, these great promises. So these promises, Isaiah 2, and there's a lot in Isaiah, by the way, Isaiah seven, Isaiah nine, Isaiah forty. Read some of Isaiah forty today in our call to worship. Isaiah forty, Isaiah fifty-three. Isaiah is filled with these promises that God's house and God's people will be exalted because of the Messiah, because of this coming Messiah. Okay, so here in Isaiah two we see three specific promises, three great promises that God gives concerning His house and how His house is going to work. First. The church will be exalted. I'm just going to briefly go through these, and then we'll expand upon them. First, the church will be exalted. The church will be lifted up. Secondly, the nations will flow to the church. The nations will flow to the church, all right? And then thirdly, the nations will be taught the law of God, okay? The nations will be taught the law of God. So let's just look at these three and look at some application we can take away from it, okay? So the first promise is, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountain's and she'll be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. So the first promise God gives is that his house will be exalted above all the nations. Isaiah is describing here the preeminence of the church. She will become the glory of all the earth. She will be lifted up above the nations. She will be exalted over all the earth. Now you can imagine if you're back with Ezra and Nehemiah, okay, and you're back in the land, and there's a you know a few thousand of you there, not very many, nothing compared like the sand of the seashore that you had in Joshua. Okay, nothing like that, just a ragtag band, and you're thinking, this is not very promising. And then you read Isaiah, you read this Isaiah, and Isaiah says, the church will be exalted, the mountain will be lifted up, the people of God will be exalted above all the nations. All right? And so this was a promise that Isaiah gave to the people of God so they would not lose hope despite appearances, despite how it looked. Okay. And the question is, when was this going to occur? And Isaiah gives us a very specific time frame. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. When is this latter days? When is Isaiah talking about? What time frame is he referring to? Okay. And we all tend to think this is about the end of the world. Okay, at least this is how I was raised. Many of you are probably raised the same way. This is talking about the end of the world. This is talking about when Jesus returns and sets up his heavenly kingdom in Jerusalem and reigns over all the earth. All right. And that's what this is referring to. But the New Testament has a different answer. The New Testament has a different answer. The New Testament says we are living in the latter days. Let me give you some examples, some quotes here. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, that's the exact same phrase as Isaiah 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Hebrews is clear. We are in the last days. The last days came, the latter days came when Jesus showed up. That means there is no other program for this earth. There is no other stage. The next step is heaven and glorification and the second coming of Christ. There's nothing else that's going to occur. Let me give you a couple other passages. Acts 2. If you remember in Acts 2, tongues of fire come down, Pentecost, all this is going on. The people are like, they're drunk. And Peter's like, no. No. They're not drunk, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, I knew some guys going up who could be drunk by nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but Peter's like, no, they're not drunk. They're not drunk, it's just nine o'clock in the morning. And they're like, well, what's going on, Peter? What's going on? Well, Joel told you about this. Joel said, in the last days, my spirit would be poured out. In the last days, my spirit would be poured out. So Peter's saying the last days have arrived. The latter days have arrived. Just a couple other passages. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, now these things happen to them as an example but they are written down for our our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages has come. So my point here is, when we read this in Isaiah 2, this is not something future. This is not something that's going to happen. This is something that is happening. The church is being exalted right now. The church is being lifted up right now above the nations. It's not something future. It's something that started with Jesus Christ. When he came, he began that began lifting up the church. And it's easy to doubt this, isn't it? It's easy to look out and doubt that this is the case. We see, I read this week where one denomination that was once really strong and really solid, their average attendance now is 21 people per church. And they've lost 40% of their membership over the last like four or five years, 40%. Four out of every 10 people have left. And they're down to 21 people who are congregation. So it's easy to look out. And there's reasons for that, by the way. The reason they're that way is because they've left the word of God. Okay, the reason they're that way is because they left the word of God. But it's easy to look out and see the church and see her shrink in certain places, see her weaken in certain places, see things the church longs for and desires for not happening. And to say, this isn't going on. No, the church is not being lifted up above the mountains. No, the church is not being exalted. All right, and so what do we say to that And when our eyes kind of um, deceive us or we look out and we don't see this happening? I think two things. Um, remember, believing the Bible is never wishful thinking. Okay? In other words, it doesn't matter what is happening in the world. If this is what the Bible says, then this is what is going on. This is what is happening. All right? So the, believing the Bible is never wishful thinking. If God promised his house would be exalted in history, then that is what is going to happen. If God said the latter days came with Jesus Christ, then the latter days came with Jesus Christ. There's nothing else to look for. Remember, our job is to believe the words of God, not to execute them, not to make them happen in the world. We're to trust those promises and trust that God will fulfill them in his time and in his way. And if you think about the birth of Christ, who would have imagined that that is how God would save the world? Who would have thought that? I mean, the Old Testament saints knew there was a Messiah coming, they knew there was a Messiah coming, but could they have even fathom that that is the way through a baby born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph and Mary being a virgin, that that is the way God would usher in his kingdom, okay? We don't know how God's going to do it. We don't know how God's going to exalt this church. Our job is to believe that he is. That's our job. That's our task is to believe the word of God, okay? But secondly, sometimes we have a very narrow lens. If you scope out a little bit, okay? The church and you scope in history and you look at the whole of history, you see the church has grown. Remember the church began with just 150 people in a small room, scared to death, honestly, all huddled up there, scared to death, not wanting to talk to anybody, hopeful they're going to survive. That's where they are. They're huddled, all huddled. And then the spirit comes down and Jesus and Jesus shows up and the spirit comes down and after Jesus ascends and then they have this fire to go out. But even then, even in Acts... Okay. You're talking about tens of millions of people who did not have access to the gospel. There are probably more Christians in North Carolina than there were in the world at the time of Paul. I didn't run the numbers. I looked at a few numbers. but I didn't run all the numbers. There are probably more Christians in North Carolina than there were in the world at the time of Paul. So has the church been exalted? Yes. In history? Yes. The church has grown magnificently. You can go almost anywhere in the world and find some Christian, some place of worship. And yes, there's places where the church is a minority, Muslim countries and things like that, China. There's places where the church is persecuted, but even in places like that, the church grows and flourishes. So yes, we believe the promises of God that the church will be exalted, but also in history, we can see that is the case. Okay? We can see that it's the case, that the church has been exalted, and the church is being lifted up and will continue to be lifted up, all right? So the first promise that Isaiah gives to us here is that in the latter days, the house of the Lord, the church of God, will be lifted up above all the mountains, will be lifted up, will be exalted. She will become preeminent, okay? And the second promise he gives is that all the nations shall flow to it. Isaiah is given a picture here of all the nations streaming up to Jerusalem. Now, for an Israelite, this would have been easy to picture, Because three times a year, what happened? All the Israelites flowed up to the temple. They came to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is on a mountain. It's on a hill. Okay, so they would come up the hill to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, to the house of God, and they would worship. But what's striking about this, of course, is it's not just Israel. It's not just the the Jews. It is the nations, all the nations. Notice that. All nations shall flow to the house of God. All of them will go up there. All right, and this is not some minor promise in the word of God. This is one of the major themes that runs from the call of Abraham. I will bless all the nations through you, all the way to Christ, all the way to Paul, all the way to Revelation. Okay, this is one of the major themes that the nations will flow up to the house of God. And okay, I think for a lot of us, this is one of the hardest promises to believe. And this is one of the hardest promises to believe. We look out at the world, we look out at the nations, and we say, this can't be possible. I mean, is it really possible that some of those nations are going to come to Jesus? Is it really possible that they're going to come up to the house of God? And the Bible says not only is it possible, it is what is going to happen. It is what is going to occur. Okay, and this is the post-millennial vision. This is the vision of the gospel going forth into all the world and conquering the world. And it is Frequent in Scripture. It's not some minor little thing in Scripture. Um, let me just give you a couple of examples from it. Daniel 2. Which many of you know Daniel 2. And in those days, those kings of... And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and his interpretation sure. So in Daniel 2, you have this picture of this statue. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue with all this different type of metals in it, okay? And Daniel tells him, hey, you're the feet of gold or the head of gold. You're You're the main guy and everything. But Nebuchadnezzar, there's coming a greater kingdom. And that kingdom is going to smash all the other kingdoms. And it's going to be a stone. And what is that stone going to do? That stone, Daniel says, is going to fill the whole earth. Okay? It's going to fill the whole earth. The glory of God is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Okay, Another example of this is Ezekiel 47. Remember the story of Ezekiel? The temple's rebuilt, and there's this stream flowing out from underneath the temple. Okay? Stream flowing out. And Ezekiel's walking down the stream, and as he walks, he goes up to his ankles, and then gets higher, goes up to his knees, and then gets higher, goes up to his waist, and then it gets higher, goes all the way, until so he can't keep walking. The stream is so huge, so magnificent, that it covers everything, and that is the church of God. That is the gospel going forth, okay? So the picture here that we see in Isaiah 2, we tend to kind of downplay it. Think that it's not going to happen, but Scripture and the prophets are clear. This is exactly what is going to occur. The nations are going to flow up to the house of God. They're going to come and worship the living God. Do you believe that? I guess that's what that's what we got to ask ourselves. Is more is this something we actually believe in our bones that this is what is going to happen? Because Jesus taught this, Paul taught this, Peter taught this. Okay, that is what it, that, that's how it goes. And for me. I mean, I don't know what your eschatological background is. And we're going to be talking about eschatology a lot over these four Advent sermons. Okay, I don't know what your eschatological background is. But mine was premillennialism. And then I read the Psalms. I'll be honest with you. I was like, how did you get from premillennialism to postmillennialism? And the answer for me is I read the Psalms. And I read passages like this. And I read Jesus saying, go and disciple the nations. I'm like, what is going on here? Yeah, the world is going to be taken for Jesus, you know. And post-millennialism has kind of made a comeback. It's kind of like a a hidden, shady thing. If you go back even 30, 40, 50 years, it's hard to find someone who held to post-millennialism. You had to kind of go to dark alleys and meet shady men and be like, oh, are you post-mill? Yeah, I'm post-mill. What about you? It was like that. Well, now it's made a resurgence, and it's magnificent. It's magnificent. Despite, I mean, our country's in awful shape. It's kind of weird. Our country's really, frankly, in awful shape. And yet in the church of God, you see this resurgence of optimism, about the gospel going forth, and that is a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing. I even heard the other day that John MacArthur's church is doing a psalm project. They're creating their own book of psalms for singing. I thought, well, maybe John will become (laughs) post-mill. Maybe John, if he reads the psalms enough and studies them enough, his congregation starts singing, and maybe like, well, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, Pastor John, what is that talking about? Psalm 110, what is that talking about, okay? Anyway... The nations will flow to the house of God. This is one of the great promises in Scripture. It's one of those things that spurs our evangelism. It spurs our worship. It spurs our work knowing that the nations will come to the house of God. Okay, so that's the second promise. All the nations will flow to the house of God. What is the third promise? What are the nations going to do when they get here? What do the nations want from us when they show up at the house of God? And this is verse 3. And many people, the nations, shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall lift up sword against nation, shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, and let us walk in the light of the Lord." What do the nations want from us? They want the law. They want the word of God. They want to be taught. They want to learn obedience. This is why the nations are here. They're here to hear, they're here to hear the word of God. That is why they have come. The law of God does not change in essence at any point in time. What God requires of men from the beginning is what he requires of them all the way through. Sincere obedience, from the heart to his word. What we see here is a spirit-fueled desire for the word of God from the nations. That's what we see here, okay? A love for the law of God, a delight in the law of God, a rejoicing in the law of God. Let us go hear this word. Let's go delight in this word. Let's go listen to the preaching of this word, okay? It's easy for us to think that walking with the spirit means we're opposed to God's law, or we don't really care about God's law anymore. And you guys, I heard this growing up, and I still think there's people out there that are like, well, if, you, if you're walking with the Spirit, you don't really need the law. You don't really need God's law, okay? That's a terrible way to understand Scripture. When the Spirit comes, like he has in our passage, people want to obey God's law. They love being taught. God inspired his law. It is rooted in his character. To love God is to love his law. The longest chapter in the Scriptures is an extended meditation on how glorious God's law is. So when the nations appear, when the nations come up to Zion, what do they want from us? They want the word of God. They want to be taught. And there's two things here. They want to be taught doctrine. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. So there's doctrine and obedience, or I don't know how, doctrine and practice, if you want to put it that way, however you want to say it there. But there's the teaching of the key precepts of Christianity The key precepts of what God's word says and then also teaching how that affects the way we live. How we walk and obey God's commandments. Because God's word is never intended just to be something that bounces around in our heads. It's never intended to be just a cool set of doctrines. Oh, this is neat. We know this now. No, it's intended to teach us how to walk and that's how the passage ends. Oh, house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord, okay? So nations come to learn doctrine, but they also come to learn how to obey and how to walk in God's ways. So why does it seem like sometimes that God's law, in the New Testament in particular, and Pastor Garner has addressed this a couple times going through uh, Matthew, but why does it seem like in the New Testament that God's law is not a good thing? Why does it seem like that sometimes in the New Testament? And I just want to briefly mention two reasons for that. Two reasons for that. First, the law cannot save you. So sometimes people are using God's law in a way that is not its intended purpose. Okay, not an intended purpose. So when Paul talks about the law or Jesus, when he rebukes people who look like they're keeping the law, um, the Sabbath law or different things like that, what they've done is usually twisted the law to make it mean something it is not supposed to mean. The law is not the way into God's house. The law are the rules once you're there. Okay, so think about God's law like adoption. When you see a child over here and you're going to adopt them, you don't say, okay, kid, if if you get all of our house rules down and you get all the manners down and you get everything squared away and then we'll adopt you then we'll bring you into our house. No, it's the other way. It's like you come into our house and then we will teach you our ways. That's how it works. And that's how scripture works. Grace precedes obedience to the law. Okay. Grace precedes obedience to law. I'm the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, because I've saved you, therefore go obey. Okay. That's, that's the way it goes. So if someone gets that backwards, Okay, Paul will rebuke them or Jesus will rebuke them. And usually when they get it backwards, they're also twisting the law and adding stuff to the law. So it can appear that God's law is not good when we see that. The second thing is there are certain parts of God's law that have been fulfilled. And so read through Hebrews or read through parts of Galatians or things like that. And we see these passages kind of downplaying God's law. But really what they're saying is God's law has been fulfilled, not abolished. Okay, what about circumcision? What about the temple? What about the food laws? Where did these go? It can look like God has just done away with these laws arbitrarily. Like, well, I didn't like the food laws, so I'm done with them. You know, I didn't like the mixed clothing laws, so I'm done with it. You know, but that is not the case. They have not been arbitrarily tossed aside. Those ceremonial aspects of law have been fulfilled in Christ and his church. They're not abolished. They're fulfilled. And there's a big difference between the two. Okay, there's a big difference between the two. Why do we need a lamb when we have the lamb of God who has made us living sacrifices? Why do we need a physical lamb when we have Jesus who has made us living sacrifices, okay? It's been fulfilled in Christ and the church, okay? Why do we need a physical temple when the true temple has risen from the dead, okay? and has made us temples, filled us with his spirit, okay? So you have this physical temple over here, and this is what's so odd about people who want to return to the physical old Old Covenant. I think the temple is going to re- re- be rebuilt, and the sacrifice is going to re- be reinstituted, and the priesthood is going to be reinstituted. The question always, why would you go back to that? And that's the whole book of Hebrews, right? Why would you go back to those shadows when you have the full thing in Jesus, when you have the better priesthood in Jesus, okay? So sometimes it can sound like, if you're reading the New Testament, that God's law is not good, but that's because someone is twisting it or putting it before grace, or because there's parts of it that have been fulfilled uh, in Christ and in his church, okay? So when the nations come up, they want to be taught God's law. The whole thing, they want to be taught God's word, all right? So these are the three promises that are given to us here. The church will be exalted. The church will be exalted. The nations will flow to it. And when the nations come, they will be taught the law of God, all right? And I just want to mention three things from the text that we can take away and we can learn or apply here, Okay? So first of all, this one I have mentioned over and over again. I'm going to keep mentioning. Jesus is conquering the nations. The nations belong to Jesus. He is taking them for himself. This is one of the great themes of the prophets and the New Testament. The Great Commission is not a hope. Jesus isn't saying, well, guys, go out there and get them. I hope you win. And so I played football in high school, and we were decent, and we went to the state championship, not championship, but went to the state playoffs one year, and we made it to the semifinals. If we'd won that game, we would have gone to the state championship, okay? So we were really excited. But we were playing a team that was undefeated, okay? Had beat its opponents by like 45 points every single game, okay? They had won the state championship at least a couple years before. They were a really good team, a really good team. And we were all in the locker room trying to pump ourselves up, trying to convince ourselves deep down in our hearts that we could actually beat this team, all right? When we knew, okay, we all knew, and I know this looking back now, we all knew that we had no chance, we literally had no chance against this team. There was no way we were going to win. But we're all in the locker room. Yeah, we got it. We got it. We got it. Okay. And of course, we went out and lost 30 to nothing. Okay. That's what happened. So this is not what Jesus is doing. Okay. When he gives you the great commission, he's not like my football team. while they're trying really hard. Okay, guys, we can take this. We can do this if we just try. No. Jesus has given us the strength. We're operating from a position of strength, not from a position of weakness. We're the ones that are going to win 30 to nothing. Okay, we're the ones that are going to conquer, all right? I think sometimes we read these great promises and it feels like a vague hope to us. It's not, it's a certainty. It is as certain as anything in your life that these three promises are gonna happen. It's as certain as anything in your life that's gonna happen. So don't lose hope. There are a lot of things that, are nasty that, things that happen in the church. The church can look weak. The nations can look strong, but that is not the case. Jesus and his spirit are going to conquer the nations, all right? And the second thing is, The word of God is primary in the church. When the nations come, we want them to find the word of God. When the church opens up her treasuries, this is what she brings out is the word of God. At the center of the church's activities, at the center of the life of the church is the word of God. She is to guard it. She is to keep it. She is to preach it. She is to teach it. She is to live it. The word of God is what the nations want. Okay? And sometimes we talk about unbelievers and we talk about them and we assume that isn't what they want. That the word of God is going to embarrass them or shame them. But when the spirit moves, people want the word of God. That is what they long for. Okay? When the spirit moves. Okay? And so what does promise of the word look like? Well, obviously it looks like we preach it and we teach it. We guard the pulpit. We make sure what's coming from this is the Word of God. What's coming out on Wednesday nights is the Word of God. What's being taught in our various Bible studies and men's forum and things like that is the Word of God. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at the Word of God. And we teach it unapologetically, okay? Unapologetically. Do not ever apologize for what is in God's Word, okay? Maybe try to help explain it, try to help people understand it, but do not ever apologize for what's in God's Word. We read today or we sung today Psalm 137. And then the Psalm 137's got this very graphic description of babies being dashed against rocks. The Babylonian babies being dashed against rocks. Does that embarrass you? Does that bother you? Does that make you uncomfortable? It shouldn't. You say, this is God's word. I rejoice in it. Now, you might not have to explain it, try to understand it, but don't back away from it. The genocide, put that in quotes, in Joshua, where Joshua slaughters all the men in Jericho, women, children, everybody in Jericho, okay? Okay? Does that embarrass you? I mean, there's numerous passages in the Bible that if you're talking to somebody, they're going to bring up and be like, oh, what about this? What about that? Do not ever be embarrassed by what is in God's word. Never. Okay? And this is what it means to make God's word primary in the life of the church. We don't apologize for it. Anything that it says. Okay? Anything. And you know what? The nations will eventually come and ask for it. They'll eventually come and say, give me Joshua. Give me Psalm 137. Give me 1 Timothy 2. Give me those passages. I want them. I want to learn to walk in the ways of the Lord. I want to learn to obey, okay? So remember Jesus is conquering the nations and remember to keep the word of God primary. Keep the word of God at the center. So let us like Anna and Simeon and Mary and Zacharias and Elizabeth, hold fast to the promises of God. Let us not waver. Let us not become discouraged. Let us not despair, but especially During this Advent season, let's constantly bring up the promises of God, remembering what he has done, remembering what he is doing, and remembering what he is going to do. And let's trust those promises and believe what he has told us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for all the good things you've given to us. We thank you for this Advent season where we get to remember the things you have done. Remember the things you are doing. Remember things you're going to do. You're truly a magnificent God who's given us great And precious promises. Forgive us for so often downplaying those or taking those for granted or not believing them as we ought to, Lord. Help those promises to become sure in our hearts and our minds, to become fixed in our lives. Help us to teach them to our children and to our grandchildren about the good things that you're going to do and the good things you have done. We thank you so much for the great promise fulfilled, Jesus Christ, and we pray all this in his strong name. Amen.